Have you been to the place where the fireweed grows? The caribou roam and the northern lights glow. Come learn from the people who call this place home. This is to 9360. You're listening to part two of our interview with Will Forsberg. Make sure to check out last week's episode, Will Forsberg Part One, Mushing, A Way of Life. Let's fast forward a little bit. Okay. Many people know the book Into the Wild. They've seen the movie Into the Wild, or they're at least familiar with the name Chris McCandless. And you had a cabin that was near the bus. And you had some of your own um, accounts with the bus. <laughs> yeah, the bus. <laughs> Talk a little bit about your experience well, with that. you know, first got dogs. Uh, Steve Tolley, my friend down in Healy here, said, uh, oh, we ought to mush out to the bus. I said, what are you talking about, a bus? Well, it turns out when they improved the road here, the Stampede uh, Trail was improved uh, in the early 60s. In fact, it was the first road project that the state of Alaska undertook after it became a state. And Jack Coghill told me that one of the main reasons they did that was they wanted to get a road out to the mining area in Kantishna, but the big thing was they wanted to establish a right-of-way for the state through federal land. And that that's exactly what happened because they built that road and yeah, there's only a few vehicles ever drove the whole thing. They spent so little money on it. And the road was going to the antimony mine uh, out of, off the Clearwater River that Earl Pilgrim had at that time. And then into the Kantishna Hills, you could continue on to the gold mining areas. So Linda and I said, hey, that's nice trail, good place to live. So we Lucky, luckily enough, got a lot here in Pangeni subdivision and moved here where the mushing was much better. I mean, we'd been trying to live there uh, on the highway where the crow's nest is now. Imagine running a dog team down his driveway and then trying to stop before you cross the highway. So once we moved here, it was much better for training and mushing. Often we would go out, go right by the bus and say, hey, let's stay the night here. You know, so there were nights we were there at 40 below and you could, big wood stove inside that bus as long as you got there with enough light to gather some firewood. You know, you'd have to keep a roaring fire going because the thing was not insulated at all. It's just a, an old city bus. The reason it was there was when this company, the UTAN company, uh, constructed the, the Stampede Road in the 60s. They dragged two or three of these buses along with them to be the eating, the dining hall, and the where they would sleep. Then on the way back in, they left one right at the Sushana River crossing because it's about halfway to the end. I was told that it also had a frozen up uh, wheel on one of the wheels. And didn't even, these buses didn't even have engines. They were pulled by caterpillars. And uh, the one that was at Sushana, the engine wasn't even there. They'd taken it out to make it lighter. But here's this bus, and it's a good shelter, had a bed and a, and a wood stove. <laughs> so before we built our cabin, we would just stay in the bus. You could look out, all the bus windows were good then. You could look out the windows and see the northern lights. And, well, in 74 was the year that uh, the state shut down a program they had called Open to Entry. They had 
big parcels, big areas of land, including what's now called the Stampede Corridor, that had been tentatively approved to be state land, but it was actually still federal land, but the state had taken over management. So they opened it up, let people stake land, before it was totally approved even to be. <laughs> and again, this is something Jack Augill told me that, well, yeah, we did that because we wanted that land to remain state, and we want, if you have a bunch of inholders, they're not going to put it in a national park. And that's what happened. So you have this corridor, it's 20, about 21 miles long, I think, going out, and seven miles wide, that's state land, and it's bordered on three sides by National Park. Beautiful place to go. Park animals come through there. So Linda, Bill Ruth, June McLean, uh, several other people, uh, Gordon Haber, in fact, was one went in there and staked their little parcels of four or five acres. And Linda and I went out and built a cabin on her parcel. <laughs> so we went out, mushed out in the spring, cut trees right on the site, you know, peeled them up, lived in a tent. And that one year, I don't think we mushed back in until May 2nd. Uh, you know, there's breakup, there's water gushing down all the rivers. But but we were able to cross, and one river you have to cross there is called the Teklanika. Uh, and in the springtime, it's low enough, it's only knee-deep, so we could lead the dogs across it. You get wet, but you know, it's 50 degrees because it's spring. And we would do that every year, out and back, you know, we go, I'd, often I'd be the first person on a snow machine to break the trail because we had the cabin to go to, you know, we wanted to get out there. So late December, 1992 was kind of the normal thing to do. I just went out by myself, broke trail, got across the Teklanika, was frozen up enough, no water at all. It's probably 20 below, you know, it was nice. Uh, got to the bus, and I, you know, we, of course we had heard about this fellow dying in the bus. In fact, we got a phone call that fall in August when he died, a park ranger had gone out there, Scott Atkinson. Now, he was out there because there's also a park service cabin, patrol cabin there. And they go out on patrol to see what the hunters are doing right there on the state land during moose season. Well, he went to our cabin and discovered that it was ransacked. And things like the, the carpet was pulled out of the cabin and on the ground outside, the bedding, the mattress, even the wood stove. And he thought, he saw no sign at all of a bear. I mean, you could tell when a bear does something because they chew on everything. And he said, this was done by a person. Well, then he found, discovered the Park Service cabin had also been vandalized. Broken into, food taken, some food taken, some still there, I guess. And somebody had gotten up on a ladder on the roof with an ax that was there, a big ax, and actually tried to chop holes in the roof, the metal roof of the cabin. And three different rangers went there and said, yep, this, this is what happened. This was a person. They could see the, the marks from the axe. The axe was beat up. <laughs> so then they find out a couple weeks later, this body has been discovered at the bus. And 
you know, I talked to Scott Atkinson about that, and he said ever since he's regretted that he didn't walk on down there. It's only another six miles. Just wondering, you know, who was this person? Could he possibly still be around? But he didn't. And uh, Rangers flew in, I believe, August 8th. Steve Carwile and Sandy Kogel flew in to look at the mess in the Park Service cabin. And if you've read the book, Into the Wild, you'd know Chris McCandless was still alive and still at the bus, but he was injured in some way, he said, and could not get out. And I've always wondered if he'd been outside, he could have heard that helicopter coming. It's only five miles away, you can hear helicopters up a valley. If he'd had a big fire, you know, ready to light, he could have signaled for help, I think. But maybe it didn't occur to him. I don't know. But uh, I just thought that was ironic too that a helicopter with the rain brought the Rangers, dropped him off, could have flown to the bus in two minutes, would have been to the bus just to look, but didn't do it. Uh, so we got to the cabin after after I got to the bus. Well, let me go back a little. When I got in the bus, it was kind of eerie. I didn't know what to expect. This was was before the book, before the movie, well before the movie, and the article in Outside Magazine hadn't even been written yet. So all I knew was a guy had died in a bus, they didn't know who he was for two weeks until somebody called him, and here's a backpack sitting there. I thought, well, it's probably his backpack, he doesn't need it. I looked through it and it had obviously been emptied except for in the one pouch where the zipper was open there was a bunch of mushrooms stored in there dried mushroom oh a squirrel or a probably a vole is storing mushrooms because they do that anywhere they can i had a use for it so i took took the pack put some stuff in it that was falling out of my snow machine and used it having no idea then that this was going to become a huge deal with this you know, the next spring, McCandless comes in, or uh, John Krakauer comes in to photograph and see the whole scene, writes a book about it, his parents come there, leave stuff there, and of course the movie is made. With, at that time, I got up to the cabin, here's this huge mess, okay, all the windows are broken, but the shutters are still on. Well, why would a bear do that? But at the same time, I discovered there had been a bear in the cabin because there were things done that a human could not possibly do. A shutter was broken that, you know, you'd have to be uh, some huge weightlifter to do this, you know, a human to do this. So a bear had been in my cabin and a person. So I'm not sure exactly what damage was done by who, but it was pretty trashed out. And so we spent part of that winter cleaning it up and fixing it back up. And this whole this whole thing with the bus and Chris McCandless was just in the back of our mind, but not that important really. Until then a couple years later Krakauer writes the book about it. And it's an interesting book, but you know it's as much about Krakauer himself as it is about McCandless. You know, it's about his own life, relationship with his father. But that caused all these people to start coming. And of course, then the movie came out, and that caused even 
even more people to come. And the bus became, you know, sort of a pilgrimage for people. So we would see them on the trail when we'd mush our dogs out. They'd be trying to figure out where they were, and people get lost. Two women drowned in the Teclanica River. You know, the Chris McCandless tried to walk back in and was turned around by the Teclanica River that was running, you know, pretty deep. And he realized, no, I can't cross that. Uh, but these, these poor women, both of them died the same way. <clears throat> Someone had strung a rope across the river and they clipped themselves into the rope so that they were attached to that rope. And when they walked out and fell down in the water, the current held them down. And because if they couldn't get unclipped from the rope, oh. you know, if they'd just been holding on with their hands, they could have just let go and they would have had to dog paddle to the shore, but couldn't do it. Same thing happened to both of them. And of course, we know now that the whole thing became such a nuisance there that uh, eventually uh, the mayor, borough mayor here, Clay Walker, organized uh, an expedition for the army to go out there and pick up the bus and bring it back. And it's the funniest looking picture I've ever seen of that humongous helicopter makes the bus look tiny. It looks like a little toy dangling under the this helicopter and now they're going to put it in the museum in Fairbanks. But the, the story for me got more intense when we had this backpack and we would occasionally use it and I thought about, well boy, this should go back to this his family. So I tried to write a letter back in the 90s, uh, you know, before Google was around, I could find an address for people. And the letter came back undelivered because the family had moved. Then, uh, Linda's cleaning out the pack and she finds a hidden zipper. And this zipper is so well hidden, we had not, we'd used this pack several times and never noticed that there's a zipper inside the pouch where the waistband that you buckle up, you know, is inside. And she opens the zipper and his wallet was in it. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and we're like, wait a minute, the police, if the police had found that, they would have known immediately who it was because he had four or five different types of identification in there. Uh, all kinds of things. And I thought this was important because, you know, there were rumors that he was suicidal because it, it seemed in the end he had a journal and he sort of seemed like he accepted his fate, that he wasn't going to get rescued by hunters like I'm sure he thought would happen. And. Uh, I thought, well, I, can't, I don't think he was suicidal. He tried to come back in and couldn't make it across the river. And then finding this wallet that had a little piece of paper with his bike combination, bike lock combination on it, and his piece of paper that was the prescription for his uh, glasses. You know, he kept that with him. He still had this stuff and he had $300. You know, they, there'd been a picture passed around of him burning his money. So people thought he had just completely given up on society, burned all his money. But no, not, I mean, he still had all this stuff. He was planning to come back, I think. Just couldn't make it back. 
And of course, the last pictures of him, he's just emaciated. I think when they found him, he only weighed 70 pounds or something. You know, and he was 145 on his driver's license, it said. So that made Linda and I both think, we got to get this back to his parents. They would want to know this. They would want to see this. So we started trying harder to figure out how, how could we even find him. And I tried to get a hold of John Krakauer, tried to, you know, several other ways. Finally, a guy shows up at my door who wants to do his own documentary. The same year that Sean Penn is producing this uh, feature film out here. And, you know, he was out here on Stampede Road filming things, filming caribou. He had uh, guys on snow machines actually chasing caribou around f for the film. So I didn't want to talk to him. I, that was disgusting. <laughs> and, uh, but here's the second guy making a documentary. So I told him, well, I'll show you where the trail starts and give you some advice. I told him to get a, a little rubber boat that you can blow up to help you get across the river. Just walk with, hold on to it. Well, so he got the boat, but he didn't get the right pump. He couldn't pump. <laughs> <laughs> so he got to the river and he couldn't pump his boat up. But he managed to swim across, got everything, including his camera, soaked and wet. But, but it still worked and, uh, you know, made it back alive. And in the meanwhile, I'd found out, I'd uh, researched him, and he's actually a professor at Boston College who had made other films, made a film about Dr. Seuss, a, doc a documentary about Dr. Seuss. So I thought, okay, maybe this is a way I can tell him and it'll, the word will get back to his parents and they'll contact me instead of me trying not being able to find them. So I gave him a little, gave him an interview and of course the only part of the interview that he put in was in the film was about finding the pack, the picture of the pack and then pictures of the wallet. And friends of the family saw this at the release date at, in San Francisco, the very first time the documentary was, sh was shown. And within two, three days, I had calls from John Krakauer, the McCandless parents, and his sister. Oh, perfect. Yeah. And it just happened that I wasn't there to answer the phone for any of those. And I listened to the th the voices, and, oh, wow, who should, I, who should I call first? So I called Krakauer to get advice. And he, he had a lot of questions about you know, what was in the wallet, how did you find the pack, and so forth. And I had questions for him because I don't think he got the story totally right. And, uh, but he recommended I call the sister because she was sort of the most in tune with, with uh, Chris. You know, they were siblings, the only two in that family. Of course, we find out later that uh, there was a, a whole other McCandless family on the on the West Coast with four other kids. <laughs> and this is part of why Chris left home, is he when he realized his dad was, you know, had two families going at once and they didn't know about each other. And his father was a little abusive to him, I'm told, is what his sister said. Anyway, I called the sister, Corrine, and, uh, you know, she had a lot of questions about it. I explained what had happened, boxed up the pack, the wallet, the money, the whole shebang, and mailed to her. And she wanted to know, first she said, well, you keep the money for doing this. And I said, no, I don't want this money, you know, it's $300 bills. 
So I sent the, the money and everything to her and I put, put the, the uh, wallet back in that zippered spot in the pack and I told her, you try to find that. Try to find where there's a secret pocket in there. And I told her, it's in there, it's in the bottom pouch, so she'd know where to look. And, and she kind of agreed that, boy, this would have been really hard to find. She could understand why the police didn't find it. And uh, so she got that, and with the $300, she didn't quite know what to do with it. And I told her, well, there's an environmental group here locally called Denali Citizens Council. Why don't you donate it to them? And I'm pretty sure that's what she did. What a lovely story. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then I talked to the parents, too. I, I don't think they were... Uh, they weren't as agreeable as the daughter, Corrine, was. They, you know, they really had questions. But one of the first questions the father asked was, you didn't find the, his wallet down at your cabin, did you? Because there was this question, still this question of, did Chris walk up the trail and find the cabins and vandalize those two cabins? I, mean, I don't know that it was him. I didn't find anything of his there. The only thing that makes me lean that way now, that it maybe it was him that did this, vandalized the Park Service cabin at least. His sister wrote a book. It's called The Wild Truth. In that book are a bunch of his pictures that he took himself on film, so he never even saw the pictures, of course. The police got the film as evidence and gave them to the family. One of those pictures is a stack of books that he had at the bus with him. And I'm almost positive those books were in the Sushana cabin. Because everybody that goes to those cabins, you're in there at 40 below, you're going to look through all the books, right? Sandy Kogel was in charge of the cabins there. And she would put together a group of books, maybe 12 books, and there'd be some Louis L'Amour westerns, a couple science fiction books like The Terminal Man, which was in that pile. Uh, and then some more serious books, you know, maybe Dr. Zhivago, which was there. You know, they, he was writing in that book. His journal, I think, was partly written in that blank pages of those books. Oh, my darn. I can't prove that, but those books, just the variety is exactly what Sandy would have put in that cabin. And here's a guy out there on his own with nothing to do a lot of the time. I think maybe he picked up those books there, you know, and I can't prove it. I, if I had access to the books, I would look through them and see. Do any of them say uh, McKinley Park uh, Library? Some of them had that written in them. Why would he have ransacked the cabins but not stayed in them? That's a really good question, yeah. Now, we don't know that he didn't. He might have stayed in them. There's a period of time he gets to the bus in his... You know, and he's keeping a journal where he just wrote day one, uh, cross river, day two, fallen water, day three, magic bus. That's what he wrote on day three. He stayed there a couple days is all, and then they think that he was wanting to keep walking west. So if you're going to walk somewhere, there was still a lot of snow on the ground. 
This was the end of April and early May, but it was a cold spring. There was still a lot of snow on the ground, and you see that in his own pictures that he's walking on a snow machine trail. It was the trail that went to the bus, and then it turned and went to my cabin. Now, there was also a trail that kept going west, but it wouldn't have been as fresh. It maybe wouldn't even shown up. You know, that he could have got on that too. But I think if he, he walked out there and found the bus on a trail, otherwise I don't think he ever would have found the bus. Because it's hard at the Tequanica to tell where the trail goes at the river. So I think he's walking on a trail. He decides to keep going. He would have followed the trail. And I think that he followed the trail right up the Sushana River. Went to my cabin first, and then it went to Steve Carwile's cabin right next door, and then it went to the Park Service cabin. And this is getting a little deep in the in the grass or whatever, deep in the weeds. <laughs> Chip Brown wrote an article, the first article about him. In that article, Chip Brown says Chris McCandless had gotten busted along the Pacific Crest Trail for breaking into a government cabin to get food. And I don't know if it's Park Service cabin or BLM, some some sort of government cabin. So I'm wondering, when he got to the Sushana cabin that owned by the Park Service, you know, the Ranger cabin, it had a shutter on the door at that time, and it would have had a sign on the door with a whole lot of writing saying, no trespassing, uh, keep out, and then it had the actual writing of the law that they were going to charge you with. You know, <laughs> you will be prosecuted, blah, blah, blah. So I'm wondering if maybe he was just mad about that. That he's, you know, darn government, I can use this cabin if I want to. Well, that one wouldn't have been hard to get in. You just take the shutter off and kick the door hard enough, it, it would open. But why vandalize it? That's, that's the thing I don't really get. But maybe he was just mad enough with the whole idea of it being a locked uh, cabin with a threatening sign on it. I don't know. Or maybe he just didn't like cabins being in his wilderness. So the things that were done to the park cabin, all the rangers agreed that this was a human that did this. Uh, we don't know. And they knew that it was done in the spring because things that were thrown outside had plant life that had started to grow and then stopped growing. Like it's under a mattress. Steve Carwell's a botanist. He, he knew what plants would have been growing. Well, they sort of could time it there with when he was first getting there. And there would have been a trail. But again, there's, there's no proof of it. You know, sometimes I don't even want to talk about bad, bad mouth in that way. But, you know, it's history. We don't know exactly what happened, but that's my conjecture. And then uh, my cabin... By the time I got there, a bear had done things, definitely. So I'm not sure what might have been done by a human, what might have been done by a bear. So why not stay in the cabins? Maybe he did, because in his journal, he doesn't really say much about where he is for a while. Uh, other than it snowed on May 11th, and his tent collapsed. <laughs> There's a picture of his cheap little tent that's collapsed with snow on it. And he writes, misery. That's all he wrote for one of the days. 
maybe that's when he went to the cabins, I don't know. And uh, found some shelter and stayed a while and then left. And my, my cabin had no food at all, so that wouldn't have helped him, other than uh, little tins of tomato paste that a bear chewed a hole in. The park cabin had food in it, and he may have taken some of the food. There was also food wrappers blown around there that Park Service thought animals had gotten into, so, so we're not sure there. But after that, we do know from his journal, he went back to the bus, decided to live in the bus, because I mean, it's pretty hard trying to walk across wet snow that's, you know, on rivers that are running high. I'm sure he realized, I'm not going to be able to walk to Nome. And the bus is a comfortable place to be. Something about the bus I, th I think most people don't know is that, that before 1992, there had been a caribou season I'm not sure when it closed. It might have closed in the 80, early 80s. But there was a caribou season when people would get out there in August. And hunters would get out there and they would write graffiti. Not graffiti really, but just uh, Joe Blow put the date, you know, August 12th, two caribou. And there was a lot of this writing with uh, felt pens and pencils on the walls and roof of the bus. And I know that was still there in 92 and that Chris McCandless would have seen it. So he sees that, he knows he's in trouble. He'd already tried to go home and cross, you know, cross the Teklanika and couldn't do it. Came back, he was starving to death. He realized that because he writes that in his journal. Uh, worst condition of my life, he wrote. Uh, then he thinks he's poisoned himself. He writes that uh, he's feeling, uh, I forget what he said, weak, uh, fault of pot seed, abbreviation pot for potato seed. He had a, a book that was uh, Edible Plants of Alaska. And he was what Krakauer, uh, hypothesis at first was he was eating poisonous Indian potato roots and seeds and that that caused him to become weak and eventually die. Well then they looked into that a botanist uh, researcher at the university looked at the, the actual plants and said no there's nothing poisonous in these plants. Then Krakauer came up with another theory that I can't even remember what it was fungus in the growing on the other plants he was collecting. Well, a lot of his pictures he took and a lot of what he wrote in his journal was just what he had collected to eat that day because this is obviously the most important thing to him. So some of the entries are just uh, gray jay, woodpecker, frog, <laughs> and that's it. So we know what he's eating and then he took pictures of some of this stuff. So he, he even shot a moose. And he knew that was illegal, but you know, to save his life, you can do you can do that. Managed to shoot a moose with a twenty-two, right beside the bus, and tried to save the meat by smoking it, but didn't know how to do it. He tried to uh, build a smoker inside a cave, sort of, that he dug out in the bank, with big chunks of meat. You have to slice the meat thin and hang it close to a wood stove where it'll dry with dry hot air.
But he writes, uh, you know, moose. He's sort of elated about the moose, but then within days, maggots. <laughs> Worst thing I've ever done. Wish I'd never seen this darn moose. So, so toward the end, we all know that live here in August, it gets cooler and mushrooms are grown. So here's a guy who's starving to death and knows it. He's going out trying to pick blueberries to stay alive, eating gray jays and, and squirrels. And all of a sudden all these mushrooms pop up. I think he would have thought about, hey, mushrooms, can eat mushrooms. And mushrooms would be like, I would think, almost a comfort food, even though it's not real nutritious, fills your stomach up and there's plenty of them. So his parents put out a book with some of his photographs. Uh, it's a very interesting book. <laughs> you know, it's also on DVD. So I got both just to have a, a collection of stuff. And I looked through those pictures, probably the third time I looked at one picture, it's a whole pile of mushrooms and a dead gray jay on top of a, an oil drum that's out there was out there by the bus. And I looked at those mushrooms, and right on the top is a big old Amanita muscaria, <laughs> red with the white polka dots. And it dawned on me he was eating poisonous mushrooms, or at least, if not deadly, they're, they make you sick. And this is well known to most people. And he even writes in his journal toward the end in August, uh, mini mushrooms, something like that. And then the next day, the biggest word in the whole journal is the word dream. <laughs> Big bold letters and then arrows pointing back up to the word mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> so I think he knew what was happening with the mushrooms. And then there's some gibberish written there. Second dream, you know, I think he was being affected by these mushrooms. And you know, Amanita muscaria has a history around the world. In India, they think that people used it for what they call Soma, S-O-M-A. And they would make this drug potion. I'm not going to remember the word. Ethnogenic, maybe? helps you see God. <laughs> so, in a way, I would like to think, you know, the last picture he took of himself, he's smiling. And he appears to be, to me, to be uh, accepting of what's happening to him. So I'm wondering, did this mushroom sort of help him in the end? Might have made him feel sick, but also given him some sort of enlightenment. I mean, we'd like to think that, but yeah, who knows. The picture, when I realized this Amanita is in the picture, I sent it to Steve Carwell, who's the botanist. And he said, well, I'm not a mycologist, but I know one. And his name is Gary Larson, the far north mycologist in uh, Fairbanks at the UAF. He sent the picture to him and without telling him who it was from and he said, you better tell your friend not to eat There's the, these mushrooms. There's I can see three or four that are poisonous in this picture. Oh, wow. 
and then he you know he wrote a long enough description that we knew what to what to look for so that I, I think you know and it's curious to me John Crack uh, yeah Krakauer had access to the journal he surely saw that dreams arrows pointing to mushrooms but he never wrote a word about that and I think that, that was something really important that he probably intentionally left out because he didn't want uh, Chris McCandless to appear as a bumbling fool. He wanted him to be kind of the romantic hero who would have been fine except for fate. What? I don't know. A guy that goes out and doesn't can't tell a poisonous mushroom and eats a bunch of them. It's not, not quite as experienced as maybe we thought. And I'm still waiting to hear from him <laughs> about that because he's made up a lot of other theories about why Chris McCandless eventually died without ever mentioning those mushrooms. It has been mentioned now by Craig Medred in the Anchorage Daily News. Did an article about it. And, uh, and of course, Medred thought that McCandless was actually schizophrenic. You know, had mental problems, which uh, could be. He certainly uh, didn't want to be around people. Didn't interact that well with people, but who knows? I'd like to think that he went out happy at least. <laughs> Maybe from the effects of the mushrooms. <laughs> we, we all go out happy. <laughs> mushrooms are not. Yeah, mushrooms are not. <laughs> You know, Chris McCandless, a lot of people criticize him for going out in the wilderness unprepared. I really kind of admire, you know, just the boldness of him, that he wanted to have an adventure. It turned out to be a little more than he thought would happen. But you got to give the guy credit. I mean, he went out there, lived off the land for quite a while. Uh, you know, in the end, it didn't work out. But I don't think he was particularly foolish or... Uh, I think he was a romantic fellow and he wanted to test himself. So I'm not really critical of him and I don't really know that he went to my cabin or not. It's possible, but maybe not. I don't know. We'll talk about how different the park is now versus when you first came. You know, it was so much smaller and understated that you would drive by on the highway and not even know that you'd pass the park road. There wasn't a, a big sign, there was just a little green sign. You know, you didn't have these big wooden signs that they have now that everybody stops to pose at. Uh, and then you'd enter the park and I think, remember that uh, Government Hill, is that what they, we call it now, going up to headquarters. In the spring, we would sled down that hill. There was so little traffic, and then a car would uh, drive back up, and we'd hold on to the bumper, maybe with a little rope. <laughs> <laughs> and he'd go slowly back up the hill. They didn't sand it or gravel it then, apparently, that I remember. 
and it would get packed down and slick enough that that was the best hill to sled down <laughs> and we would lay in a little red sled those little orange or red sleds with a little stick in each hand and use the stick out to, with our arms out to the side to steer and we'd race down the hill and it was always the biggest guy that would win or the biggest person <laughs> I remember uh, Don Melliker was one of the bigger friends I had and he would say see fat guys win <laughs> <laughs> but that was so different because now you have so much traffic in the winter going up and down that hill they would never think of allowing people to do this where then uh, somebody would would uh, be at the top flag down traffic and say wait a minute would you the the sledders are coming up <laughs> oh yeah okay <laughs> and then in the summer you know I arrived in July and uh, the train would come in and it was a big deal you know I mean it's still kind of a big deal when the train comes in but the mail would come on the train so that was a big deal for people and especially uh, winter time it would come north one day and south another day I think it was and we'd all go down and uh, you know Wally Cole was the postmaster Wally and Jerry would be down there to sort the mail and the the uh, train would stop and the one of the guys working on the train would open the big door on the freight car and we'd all walk up to that opening and he'd start handing stuff out and just everybody from the community almost it was just a gathering we would have and we'd carry the mail in and then uh, hang around while Wally and Jerry were sorting it and then uh, often somebody would bring a guitar or somebody else would bring a mandolin and somebody maybe even a banjo oh my god <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so we'd end up having a square dance at the the old train station which you know has been gone for years now but that was a great old building with a full basement and it had a station master uh, who lived upstairs with his family you know it was really nice having that that was sort of a community hall that everybody could use that uh, you know was owned by the railroad then of course there was the airstrip which is still there but uh, it's really built up more now and actually has a fence around it I think keep the moose off of there but back in 74 uh, we would go out and play softball on the on the airstrip you know, the people that worked at, at the hotel would uh, versus the guys that worked at the park service we'd have games if a plane wanted to land it'd just fly over and buzz buzz the strip once and we'd all run to the sides and watch them land and clap when they land <laughs> but things were just so much smaller and so much more uh, open you know you didn't have quite the rules that we have now not as many trails of course but uh, you know there's enough enough to get around and ski and do things and you could bike any trail you wanted that was good enough and we slow, slowly seen the park grow which is okay I like having the new trails are terrific you know but uh, it's a little different atmosphere so I think it was maybe 78 or something like that before or maybe even 1980 before the mail truck started coming every day and that really changed things because we didn't go down at you know nine in the morning to meet the mail truck. <laughs> 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 but 
But there, it was at gatherings like that that you would meet people. I think that's, uh, yeah, maybe where I met Linda the first time. Later we married in 87. And uh, she talked a lot about these trips she would do. You know, she'd been here longer than, you know, four or five years longer than I had. And uh, she skied all the way around Mount McKinley one year. Started at, uh, I think down by Colorado Creek, you know, south of, of the park, uh, or south of Cantwell, quite a ways. And she and a fellow named Mike Wild <laughs> was appropriately named and, and was a backcountry ranger. They skied all the way out uh, past Rainy Pass to Shellabarger Pass with little red sleds behind them and uh, she had sewed up a canvas tent and made a wood stove out of a two gallon uh, gas can. <laughs> so they actually had a heated tent, went over this pass all the way back in uh, from the Tonsona River and you know the Muddy River crossing all that and eventually to Wonder Lake. And this was a couple of months skiing Boy, she started telling me these stories. I said, oh, this sounds great. I'd love to do some of this traveling like this. Well, she had also been big dog mushing, of course, and I've talked about how we both got into that. But Linda was interesting in that as a kid, she grew up in Tacoma, and her father was a mammologist, and he was also a doctor. So he knew pretty well how to do veterinary stuff on mammals. And he was uh, affiliated with the Point Defiance Zoo in Tacoma. When they would get new animals, they had to be quarantined before they could enter the zoo. So they'd go live at Linda's house. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so she had a river otter in the bathtub, you know, a bear cub, black bear cub that would play with their big dog. All kinds of, you know, Martin and uh, mink, uh, exotic animals that I can't remember the names of, you know. So she grew up around animals. And her father uh, was an expert on and studied his whole life, a type of mouse that only lived in the top of these huge pine trees in Washington spent their whole life up there, built a huge nest, and just ate the uh, pine needles, parts of the pine needles, I guess. He would climb these trees way up, I mean, 100 feet tall trees, almost, <laughs> and uh, study them and capture some. He had a lab where some of these mice would hibernate. So Linda wanted to show me the hot lab and the cold lab the hot lab animals that needed heat, cold lab for the ones that were going to hibernate. And she would open a little door on the where they lived and pick up a little mouse of some kind out of there, hold it in her hands, and it would warm up enough within three or four minutes, think it's spring or something, <laughs> poke its little head up and look around. <laughs> and that was my first introduction to how well Linda got along with animals. Well, then, in, uh, back here in Alaska, then, the first time we went on a hike together, uh, we were down south of Cantwell, 
and uh, looking at some land that the state was trying to sell, I think. And a porcupine come walking through the woods in the aspens, and she said, I'll, oh, I'll, I'll catch this porcupine. I said, what? Are you kidding? How are you going to catch a porcupine? Well, she walked up slowly behind it, and it's just walking along, and it senses that she's behind it, so it starts going up a tree. And when it gets up just about chest eye on her, she reaches back under its tail and just holds the little fur and hair that's on the base of the tail does not have spines on it or quills. And then she puts her other hand under its stomach, lifts it right off the tree, doesn't struggle the least bit, walks over, <laughs> puts it right in my face and says, isn't he cute? <laughs> and you know, when you get that close to a porcupine's face, they are pretty cute. <laughs> So, boy, I realized that was the first activity of any kind we'd done together. Man, what, who am I getting uh, involved with? Dr. Doolittle's daughter here or something. Well, then, that was a continuing theme of living with Linda was uh, somehow animals were just comfortable around her. We would see, uh, we would find a fox den and she would sit at the mouth of the fox den and make little foxy noises, you know, and get the pups to come out. <laughs> and the parents would be out just sitting looking at us. <laughs> she had had a wolf as a pet as part of this thing with her father in the zoo. And so she was very interested in wolves. She was uh, going to school at UAF and studying wolves uh, under Dr. Rausch. Bob Rausch was a professor up there then. And uh, so so we would go and look for wolf dens and observe the wolves quite a bit. Uh, actually had wolves come into our dog yard at Sushana. And in fact, uh, Jeff King was out there with Donna at that time camping in a tent. The dog started barking he went outside and saw what he thought was a loose dog <laughs> and was trying to catch it. Come on, boy. Come here, boy. And he figured it was one of my dogs that he didn't recognize. And then he realized, this dog doesn't have a collar. <laughs> and it kept skittering away from him. But it was just a lone, this was a lone wolf that had heard that dog's howling and probably was looking for a pack to join up with. So we saw all kinds of animals together. Every time she'd go mushing, we'd really have to watch out for moose because somehow there would always be a moose in her trail. And her dogs would chase, chase them down if they could, but she'd get on the brake. You know, so we had that uh, sometimes a little scary even with she'd walk right into bears a couple times, not seeing them that they were there fishing in a river. Uh, you know, and then would at a certain point, we gave up dog mushing because uh, so we got into our 50s and it, it's kind of hard on your body, uh, especially if your ankles and knees start to get a little arthritic just from all the sledding and stuff. What year was that? Did you get out of dog mushing? 2006, we decided, you know, we wanted to do other things in the winters. I mean, we loved winters all those years. Because we'd quit work, and we'd always quit work in September, no matter how much money we were making on a good job, and do our dog thing. But we decided that uh, we need to do something else now. 
So 2006, we had about 12 dogs left, and that was one team. And just luckily, we had a handler cabin, and uh, some young couple had been living in it. And we, so we approached them, would you like to have our dogs for the winter? And you can have our snow machine to use to make your trails. You can have our four-wheeler to train them. And you can live in this cabin over here. <laughs> Who could refuse that? Who could refuse that? They said, yeah, that'd be great. Well, this was uh, Bridget Borg and Jared Zimmerman. Very reliable, nice couple who, you know, we'd gotten to know because they were living in one of our cabins for a summer. And uh, so they had a great time that, that winter with the dogs while we went, uh, visited Hawaii, visited uh, Baja, California, came back and decided, you know, we're ready to do different things in the winter. And it was just perfect that Bridget and Jared wanted our last 12 dogs so they could stay together as a team. It was great for them. They loved it. And, uh, but of course they needed a permanent place. So then we sold them one of our rental cabins. <laughs> you, you were the ideal package for them. <laughs> you know, this, this is another subject, but we realized that a lot of people want to stay here. You know, they need a cabin in the summer and they want to stay the winter too. And we needed some help by the time we had 40 sled dogs, we needed a, a handler. So we built a, our first little handler cabin about 1985 near the house here. And uh, Bob and Julie at that time lived in it. People may know who I'm talking about. And they helped us out with the dogs, lived there for a few years. And then we started thinking, boy, if we had a bunch of these cabins, we can rent them. We might not have to work in the summer either. <laughs> so that became our spring thing. Once you're into May, late April and May, you can't mush anymore. So that became our spring activity. We had two months about before work started, either at the park or on a highway job, something like that. And we, for about 10 years in a row, we built a cabin every year. And then that, that was nice. I mean, we, just let Park Service know that we had these cabins. They would refer people to us. So the people were already vetted by Park Service. Perfect. And you know, we first built them. We, we weren't sure people would want to stay the winter, but it turns out they did. Well, it's, it's a great adventure for everybody that does this. You come up here in this totally different environment than most people have ever lived in. And they're just, I mean, for a lot of them, it's just life-changing that they've I can count a bunch of people who are living here full-time now who started out in one of our cabins. And that's nice. I mean, now we're, uh, we've sold most of the cabins to people who had lived in them. They'd already lived in them for five or six years. So we figured they <laughs> were comfortable with it. If they want to buy it, that's great. And they can make payments to me and uh, do their own maintenance. <laughs> 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 so that, that gave us the chance to do things summer and winter. So summer uh, we started doing river trips, which Alaska is just so beautiful. If you can get on a 500 mile river and float the whole thing, uh, and you know, we've done that a little bit, but when you're having to work in the summer, you can only go for three days at a time. I think the first river trip we did together was we started September 24th on the Toklat at the Toklat Bridge. 
Of course, there wasn't enough water to just jump in a clepper, which is a fairly fragile boat. So we ended up walking for two days, just lining the boat down, down the tow plat from the road camp, got to the East Fork. I think we saw 11 bears along, uh, along the tow plat before we got to the lower tow plat cabin. You know, that's about 22 miles, 11 bears. At times, like where the clear water came in, we would get in the boat and paddle, but then you'd get to another spot that's way too, way too shallow. Eventually got the end of the tow cut to the Cantishna, and where we had would later build the cabin for ourselves. And stayed in the neighbor's cabin until we got up one morning and there's ice flowing on the river. <laughs> we go, oh, we might have overstayed here. <laughs> so this was a memorable but kind of foolish thing that we did there because this ice, uh, you know, it's not real solid. But you can kind of get trapped in these pancakes of ice that first start to float down. And we were going to have to float another 50 miles to Manly Hot Springs. So that took two days, but we did that and, uh, you know, dodged the ice. Uh, <laughs> had a couple of hallucinations along the way. <laughs> we, we saw what we were absolutely positive was a boy standing on a a sandbar and we'd heard some shotgun uh, shots going off back in the lakes some people were hunting some kind of birds I suppose so we were both convinced that this was a, a boy standing there with a stocking cap and a brown shirt and as we got closer he spread his arms out and flew up off the ground and it was a bald eagle <laughs> oh. <laughs> we both we looked at each other jeez because we've been talking about, oh, we, maybe we'll get, we can stop and ask this guy how far it is to Manly. And on and on, we were, and they were just so surprised that it turns out it's an eagle. <laughs> Friends think it was a shapeshifter shaman or something, you know. <laughs> but we did eventually get to, to Manly Hot Springs and hitchhiked back in the back of a pickup truck. That was the coldest ride I've ever had. And, about 10 degrees in the back of a truck. But we learned from that how nice it can be on these rivers. So our, our favorite one became up in the Brooks Range, uh, the No Attack. Uh, it's so isolated, there's only one village on a 500 mile river. It's the village of No Attack, which at the very end, about 60 miles from the ocean. And it's a national preserve up there. It's in, well, part of it is in Gates of the Arctic National Park. And uh, it's almost two hour flight, hour and a half, maybe in a small plane from Coldfoot. So we, we were able to drive up, actually floated from Coldfoot area down to Bettles, kind of a shakedown trip there, and then got in a float plane and flew out to the no attack. And I believe it took six weeks to get down to the ocean. It's so pretty there, you want to float maybe for half an hour and stop and camp again. Because <laughs> yeah. you don't want to miss it. And, you know, wolves there, found two wolf dens right along the river who were not afraid of us, just looked at us curious, like bark, bark a little bit, but didn't really run away. And we, you know, maybe hadn't seen people, I don't know. Uh, 
I think the first 30 days we didn't see another person except one plane that flew over low that I think must have been the Park Service uh, patrol or something and waved at us out the window. So that became our thing to do every, every summer for about 15 years, you know. <laughs> Incredible. You know, we tried to work in a little, maybe a little bit of work. We did some fire work uh, out on the Cantishna when there was a fire nearby. They rented our boat and paid us to shuttle firefighters around. You know, so things like that would come up. But, but we always had enough time to do these river trips. Uh, just a beautiful thing to do if you can get the time to take your time with it. I mean, so many people fly in and spend a week on the no attack is the typical tour of that upper part. I think we did maybe 22 different rivers, you know, from from the Arctic area down to uh, Lake Clark. And and still enjoy that here with the pack rafts. You know, it's a little harder for, for me to paddle now, but it hurts a little more. <laughs> but <laughs> I get cold a little easier. <laughs> Which is part of why, you know, we both started thinking this cold weather in the winter, if we're not going to have dogs, we've got to have something to do in the winter, right? And we had friends, you know, uh, Shorty and Sonia and, and others, uh, Mike Schieber, who had gone to the Big Island and said this is a really nice place, that it's similar to Alaska. How could it be similar to Alaska? You can get land there and sort of live off the grid and have some space to yourself, it's not so crowded, uh, build without a permit and you might have trouble selling the place but you're not going to get in a bunch of trouble. So went over there and just started going in the winters for a month at a time and then two months, five months, bought a condo <laughs> and now it's a six or seven month thing for me. And. Uh, I, I don't think there's a better climate anywhere in the United States than that west coast, the Kona coast of the Big Island. Uh, where, I, where I live there, it only rains about 10 inches a year. It's 65 at night and 85 in the day. Perfect. Linda and I immediately were drawn to the ocean there, of course, because there are marine mammals all over the place. The same humpback whales that are in Glacier Bay take a long swim, you know, every fall, and they end up at Maui, and at, right off the Big Island, there's a marine park that's a sanctuary for whales. So with a kayak, you can paddle out in fairly calm water there. You have to be careful about wind coming up, but you can paddle within 100 yards of a whale that has a calf, and they are not dangerous to you. They're not shy of you. I've seen people who maybe get too close for comfort, but we would never get that close. But then they would start showing off. And I don't know if this was, uh, again, Linda's, how she's magnet, a magnet for animals, for mammals especially. But uh, it really seems like a female humpback will have a calf stay in an area well, the calf is getting stronger, learning to swim, gain some weight. And then they start learning to jump. They start learning to poke their head, the uh, spy hop it's called. They poke their head out of the water straight up in the sky and look around. And they will do that 
when there's a boat there because they want to look at it and they will come up near you and look at you and it's the most incredible thing I mean the uh, adults are the size of a, you know the tour bus and yet they can swim and jump entirely out of the water within a hundred feet of us and splash back in the water and then right behind the calf imitating the mother do the same thing and make you know waves big enough that we've got to get ready for them. <laughs> you know be balanced as the wave comes at you so that was just fascinating to us and it, it's still uh, something I do uh, February through and the end of March the whales are there uh, there's spinner dolphins there that love to show off and jump in the air and spin and do somersaults and the uh, places of snorkel where you can see you know beautiful colorful fish still and coral so that's become my winter thing to do I kind of miss the dogs I kind of miss the snow but you yeah, know not really <laughs> And I just thought it was fascinating that e even in uh, Hawaii, animals were attracted to Linda. I mean, that's really how it seemed. If I was by myself, I didn't see animals as the same. Where uh, there's something that they sense people, of course, we know this now that whales and dolphins have sonar. And they don't just see an object, they see inside an object. You know, they see your bone structure, and they're just so clued in. They almost don't need their eyes when they dive deep in dark water. They use that uh, sonar to, and echo location. That's how they find things to eat sometimes. So they're just fascinating animals. You know, things, other things there like the rays, big rays, uh, manta rays. So that's sort of, a, for me at least, a new venture in life here of what I'm doing now. And uh, it's so different though living in a condo where your nearest neighbor's about six inches away <laughs> through a wall. <laughs> so you try to be quiet. <laughs> and hope they are too. Hope they are too, especially upstairs. But, but uh, there's that possibility still of, of uh, there of finding a you know, a couple acres of land and growing some bananas and, <laughs> you know, fruit trees. Well, you certainly have had amazing adventures. I love all the geography you gave, demographic of the rivers and trails that you and Linda traversed over your time here. If somebody was coming to this area for the very first time, with all the knowledge that you have and adventures that you have explored, what would be your advice to somebody coming to Denali? I think what I would advise is come in the shoulder seasons because in the midsummer you're gonna it's gonna be warmer, but you're gonna have a lot of mosquitoes, a lot of brush to walk through, it rains more. If you come in September, early September, maybe even late August, around Labor Day, it is so beautiful here, it's just stunning. And it's the colors of the tundra turning red, the blueberry bushes turning red, all the birch and the aspen turning yellow. It's just magnificent. I was 
lucky enough to meet Grant Pearson when I worked at North Face Lodge. It was his last trip to Denali, and it was in the fall and just beautiful. And he got out of the van and he said, I'm so happy the park has rolled out the red carpet for me. <laughs> and that's just what it's like. And really, it's, it's totally different, but it's the same idea in the spring. There's not so many visitors yet. And it's just a fascinating thing to do to come, say, in early April, maybe even late March. By, by early March, we already have 12 hours of light, 12 hours of dark, and then it's just increasing. It's warm, it's nice, it's it cold at night still, so you don't have the bugs. All the bushes are covered with snow, so you don't have to walk through them. And you can come up here and do a dog sled trip with several you know, different uh, outfitters. There's one in particular who, who has the park concession for this, so it's easy to find him. And uh, uses cabins for people who want a cabin or take in a tent. You can really see something different that you know, you're not going to find anywhere else probably in your whole life. I, I always thought a, a kind of an ideal trip would be come and see the start of the Iditarod. That's fascinating down in Anchorage. Then come up to Denali and do a dog sled tour during the Iditarod and then fly to Nome to see the finish. Oh, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my advice. I mean, it's nice in, in the middle of summer. It's beautiful. It's warmer. Uh, it's easier to travel, of course. It's light all night. That's something to experience. But summer light all night, that means you're not seeing the northern lights. And, uh, you know, that's really awesome, too. Well, it's been a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much for sharing your stories and your time. And I just feel fortunate that you were so generous with the time that you shared with us. Well, thank you, Nova. It's my, my pleasure to do it. I've enjoyed uh, bringing up all these old stories, too. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Denali 360 is a production of Denali 360 LLC. Interviews are edited by Josiah Robinson. Podcast artwork designed by Daniel Karapedian. Theme song written and recorded by Jonathan and Brooke East. Special content and sponsorship recorded by James Rio. I am your host, Nova Cunningham. For more information on Denali Park, Alaska, go to Denali360.com. Denali360